0: So, relationship with God changes as you mature, but the way I prayed 40 years ago is not the way I pray today. But there's no doubt that in my own personal journey, I have been impacted by the contacts I've had with other religions in multiple ways.
1: This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Coming to you today from Aspen Grove Camp in Provo Canyon, I'm speaking in good faith today with Rabbi Dr. Alon goshen gottstein Thank you so much for speaking today.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I love Aspen Grove. I love Utah. I love all the people I meet. It's a wonderful opportunity.
1: We'll be speaking in a few minutes about the Elijah Interfaith Institute, which was founded by the rabbi. Also, though, if you don't mind, I would like to just go back to the very beginning of your life. And you were born, it seems, to a couple of folks who really lived the life of the mind.
0: Oh, I was blessed to, to grow up at the home with a lot of intellectual stimulation. My father was a noted biblicist and linguist, and he was the editor of the Hebrew University Bible Project. So we had priests and various other intellectuals coming through our home, which I think contributed a lot to how I've emerged because it gave me kind of openness and expansive mind. Uh, Even denominationally, even though I'm orthodox, but our home was open to people of all denominations because academia provides that kind of a foundation. You know that from the university life that you represent on this radio station. And with that openness, it's an attitudinal openness, but it's also an intellectual stretching. So my father played an important role. My mother's also a psychologist. So I think it's a good definition. Yes, the life of the mind, but there's also behind that the life of the spirit. And I've spent many years trying to balance and cultivate the two.
1: That can be the work of a lifetime to try and do that. Do you recall your first inklings of not just being aware of tradition that you were a part of, but actually spiritual awakenings and, and openness or realization of the reality of faith and belief.
0: Oh, very much so. I was a teenager. Uh, I had attended a certain seminar. Uh, se- the purpose of the seminar was to bridge between religious and secular in Israel. It was an all-Jewish seminar. I myself was not officially religious, but hadn't really cultivated a, a religious life. And this seminar... Provided a certain opening, interesting enough, in a moment of dance where something became real for me and pushed me to want to explore further. And that was, uh, that was the launch pad of a process that's been going on now for the last oh, 44, 45 years. And I will differ with you only in one thing. You say it's a lifetime process, but since I believe in multiple lives, as do the Kabbalists and as do many other faiths, it's probably a process of multiple lives.
1: I'm wondering from your early academic beginnings and some of your earlier writings were specifically focused on Judaism. But what brought you to be aware of interfaith communication and actually people trying to expand that across the world?
0: So, I don't know if the readers actually realize who, who I am because we haven't had a chance to introduce me. But you've aptly described a person with... Uh... It's funny, I'm getting this metaphor of a launch pad for a rocket, you know, so it has the first step and then goes into orbit. The launch pad certainly was Jewish studies, and I am a scholar of rabbinics, uh, but that seems to have been a launch pad for something else, and right now there's a, my life is a satellite in a different orbit, and that orbit, of course, draws on the, was the foundation, but it has has expanded into my being an interfaith theoretician and activist, Uh, theoretician, as you say, I have upwards of 12 or 13 books that engage uh, either authored or or team projects that I run as part of the Elijah Interfaith Institute that bring together scholars of different religions to reflect on matters of interfaith theory and praxis. So the various writings really are like a, a, a second career, which then poses the question, what is that second career? So I suppose many people enter the move from rocket to satellite in their lives through midlife crisis. That's what midlife is meant to do. To to, to to put you into a new orbit. So this was my midlife crisis, and my midlife crisis runs as follows. I'm sure academia as played at BYU is all about noble feelings and, and purity for the good, but in other parts of the world, there's all kinds of uh, ego and power and politics associated. Uh, maybe,
1: I would have to say that's a, a worldwide constant.
0: Well, I'd like to think things are different with the Mormons. In any event, uh, where we were, I was I was the object of some very, very dirty academic politics, which in some way I was able to overturn, but which still left me wondering about what was the meaning of my life at that point, not yet 40, I think I was 38 at the time. I certainly hope that my life will extend to more than 76 because I feel like I'm not accomplishing anything, but we still call it midlife crisis. It doesn't have to be halfway point. Here I was, an academic, having won certain prizes and having had certain commitments in the university which were being violated, at the same time, I've been cultivated, we just said a moment ago, and I like how you put that life of the mind, and I complemented that with life of the spirit. So I was cultivating and working through that tension. It was a schizophrenic tension in my early years. It's much more harmonious now in my later years. My middle years, I'm not yet later years on. So the, I was cultivating the, the spiritual side, and part of the cultivation of that was a growing interest in other faiths as well. So you're asking where did that come from? I don't know. It's something deeply ingrained in me, and it goes deeper than the heritage of my parents' openness. Uh, I remember from a very young age, fascination with religions, Hinduism in particular. I mean, I've, I've written two books on Jewish relationship with Hinduism. I've spent decades cultivating my own dialogue with, with Hinduism. But not only Hinduism, i had been cultivating friendships with Christian communities, mostly Catholic, and a network of relationships that are friendship, sharing, learning, and part of a discovery of the expanse of the spiritual and intellectual life of religious traditions. So here I was at this point of being on the one hand an academic, on the other hand having this other second life with with noticeable tensions, priorities and time divisions, commitments, who I am. And I remember one day a friend asking me, so are you happy with your life? And rather than then blurting forth the obvious, oh yes, thank God, everything's great. I said, I don't know, I need to think about that. And I was struck by my own response. A short time later, I was driving in, in the car, and a friend asked me the following. She was taking a course with me at the time at the Hebrew University, a course in Jewish studies. And she asked me, "Where can going to take a course, she meant something intellectual, but also spiritually nourishing, about the lives of Christian saints. And this is in Jerusalem. I said, nowhere, because nobody teaches saints People teach archaeology. People teach uh, the Bible. People people train priests, but nobody teaches the saints. Certainly not in an interreligious context. And as we were talking on the phone, it was a long ride. I was driving from Haifa to Jerusalem. This vision came to me of creating a space where the different religions could share, learn, work together. And this vision just kept pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring. And then I sat down and I wrote it down. And there was my 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 life's mission. I said. I'm going to give it 10 years if it succeeds. Well, it's been 20 years now. I still don't know if it succeeds, but I, I don't know what I could do anymore in life, so I'm just keeping doing it. But uh, on, a more, on a more serious note, I think it is moving from strength to strength because we have been able to engage scholars and world religious leaders and communities, and the vision is growing as it unfolds. So the answer of how it comes about, it comes about a combination of personal quest and interest, personal relationships, a midlife crisis, a vision and a calling.
1: I've read, and I'll have to paraphrase, you talking about the fact that much interfaith work is being open to other traditions and what we can learn, and yet at the same time still being rooted in a personal tradition. Have I stated that correctly?
0: What strikes me in this question is that somehow you present the two as being some kind of remarkable discovery, sort of how could that be, as though... The norm was that as soon as you deal with another tradition, you somehow compromise your own. That was almost implicit in how you put the question. I think the reality is that most people avoid engaging in another tradition because they consider consider the faithfulness of their tradition requires staying more inwards or, or limited within the interests of their specific tradition. And I think there is something to it that people who cross over religions very often exhibit a weaker religious identity or commitment. So there is something to how you pose the question. Yet my own personal experience, which has then led to the theory and then to the training of numerous uh, seminarians and of different faiths and religious leaders, is that deep commitment to your own faith goes together with deep engagement with the other and thereby enriches your own religious identity. And this has led to the slogan of our organization – the Elijah Institute's tagline is sharing wisdom, fostering peace. Now, sharing wisdom is a way of saying, I can share something without, without necessarily trying to preach my faith or, or convert. Let me state something for LDS ears because we're sitting right now in LDS country. LDSers, I suppose you can say that. Can you say that? We, I really have, I coined the term, Mormons, are trained at a very young age to go out and missionize and they do so in the name of truth. And in many good, friendly interactions with various friends, there's always a sense of them feeling the need to share the truth which runs very, very deeply within the fabric of of their faith. Not everybody likes to be missionized. Jews in particular have a very hard time being missionized. They've suffered for thousands of years in the hands of Christians. They want the freedom to practice their faith without being missionized. Uh, In fact, when Mormons came to Jerusalem and were allowed to build a center the BYU-Jerusalem campus, they had to do so unconditionally that they promised to refrain from missionary activities, which as far as I know, they've been keeping to remarkably, remarkably well. The slogan of sharing wisdom is to a certain degree the counterpart of a missionary drive in engaging people. Sharing wisdom says, I have what to learn from you and I have what to teach from you, and yet I seek to uphold your religious identity even as I seek to uphold my own, conversion, missionary work is off the table. It happens that people through interfaith engagement, you know, either make personal relationships or make discoveries or broaden their religious identity or engage in multiple religious identities. All these things are part of what happens in life. But the drive is not, I am telling you the truth, come listen. But rather, we can enrich each other. And the key for such mutual enrichment is the concept of wisdom. Wisdom creates that, charged yet neutral space where spiritual exchange can take place, yet everyone can feel comfortable in their identity and in who they are. And I can say that following 20 years of summer schools and courses teaching and seminars and working with religious leaders and publications, it's a modality that works. And actually, you get much further in helping people learn who you are, appreciate your tradition through this approach of sharing wisdom than by telling them the truth. Most people will get put off by you telling someone the truth. There obviously are people, usually needy people, who may, who may need to find an answer and they don't have and they'll latch on to this missionary or the other missionary depending if they see the billboard or someone's knocked on their door. But the real sharing, I would say, of of, of mature people need not be missionary. It can be wisdom-oriented because that way we grow from the encounter with each other. This has been our philosophy. This has been my experience, and one of the challenges then is how to juggle the notion of truth with refraining from forcing your truth on someone else. But the ability to share wisdom is, I think, a much more mature way of sharing your truth rather than the intentionality of engaging in missionary activities. We're planning currently the development in Jerusalem of what we call the Center of Hope. Hope is an acronym for House of Prayer and Education, an interreligious center in Jerusalem where all faiths share in study, museum, pilgrimage, prayer. Within this context, one of the fundamental guidelines for the charter of the Future Hope Center, God willing it'll be built in my lifetime, is there's simply no room for missionary activity. This has been part of the philosophy of Elijah and this will be for the Hope Center. No room for missionary activity. There's a lot we can do, but we must refrain from the intention to to convert the other. And this has, I think, been an important part of the orientation, as you just described it, and as captured in this notion of sharing wisdom. I like that phrase.
1: I have found, uh, just in the interfaith interviews I've done, almost a sense of relief, A, at people who realize they were being listened to and appreciated for the wisdom they did have and their life experience. And also relief from the point of people who felt like, oh, we can talk about this without feeling any obligation to sort of push one way or the other. But to, I think it was Bishop Christor Stendhal who said, holy envy, that we can appreciate beautiful things that we can learn that others bring from their traditions.
0: Christer Stendhal was a great friend, a great mentor, There's a book coming out in a few weeks that I wrote that I dedicated to him. The book describes Luther and is now his 500th anniversary of the Reformation. As a spinoff of another project, I ended up doing a book titled Luther the Anti-Semite: A Contemporary Jewish Perspective. It'll be published either towards the end of the year or right at the beginning of the coming year by Fortress Press. And it seeks to to revisit what can we learn from Luther's shortcomings, including his anti-Semitism, that would real, be relevant for how one religion treats another today, uh, as opposed to simply engaging in the condemnation of Luther's anti-Semitism, which has been what people have done. And I dedicate this book to Christer because uh, he really, well, he's, he was a Lutheran bishop, and a person who, who was able to critique his tradition and make bridges with Judaism was a great personal inspiration. I remember once being asked, who are your hearers? And one of the first names I blurted was not the great, great mystics who I would have thought, but Christer Stendhal. And Christer, when when, uh, in 1996, when I had this uh, vision calling, he was one of the first people I shared it with. And already then the concept was wisdom right from the beginning. And he said, this is what is unique to your work alone. You must continue to develop the wisdom. Don't get sidetracked. Keep remembering this aspect of wisdom. And It's very appropriate that you should point this to the notion of holy envy, because holy envy is a way of appreciating the wisdom of someone else, but not in a way that would lead you to become them, but that would inspire you to bring the best out of yourself.
1: Do you find that there are members of your own religious community, and this could apply to anyone who does
0: interfaith dialogue, that are puzzled? Why are you spending your time doing this? I think the key question I always get, why don't you invest Instead of instead of working with the non-Jews, why don't you bring harmony and understanding between the Jews? Because the Jews are so divided, and I typically, in other words, they they don't feel an urgency to address the broader world. They don't feel an urgency to deliver a mission, a message to the broader world. And my answer to them is: There's so many people who can do it in the Jewish world. There's so few people who can reach out from Judaism to the other world. I've thank God I have the the tools and the capacity to do that. This is my mission. They are puzzled because, A, they don't see the importance, and B, because they give greater priority to to what's important on the Jewish side. But being puzzled is is actually not the most extreme. I've I've also faced uh, opposition and condemnation and and rejection. So depending on on how far you go, I've been engaged in a process of restoration of a church after Jews set fire to it. I did a campaign of getting rabbis to support a crowdfunding initiative, which was more about showing solidarity than it was about raising money. And that led to some great opposition. You going building a church, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You singing for the Pope. Various various things that I've done along the way that have met with resistance, with some of the more insular groups. And part of my challenge has been to maintain dialogue and friendship with the insular groups while maintaining my work and sometimes to get them, you know, at, at some points in crisis, To move it from an illegitimate dispute to a legitimate dispute. We have a notion in Judaism of a legitimate dispute within the boundaries of what you can accept, you can tolerate as two conflicting opinions. To move it from an illegitimate dispute that puts you beyond the boundaries of the acceptable to a dispute that's within the boundaries of the acceptable. The Elijah Interfaith Institute,
1: which you began in 97, as you've been telling about, I'm just going to read a little bit from the website, a spiritually engaged academic who was and continues to be transformed through deep contact, spiritual and intellectual, with equally minded representatives of other faith traditions. Do you find that people just come out of the woodwork? Do you have to seek out people, or have you just found around the world as you've gone from Montreal to Dallas to every place around the world, that there are people ready and waiting to
0: engage? Both. There are people ready to engage. There are networks. And I've brought new people into the networks. And I've sought new relationships. And I've cultivated. I'm about relationships. I, I, I walk the street. I make relationships. So I it's finding the opportunities where they are, building on what exists, and creating new opportunities. What things make you
1: feel... Connected to God on a daily basis, whether it's a a personal observance or working with other people, what are the things that connect you with the divine?
0: I have a fairly disciplined spiritual life. I spend several hours a day in meditation and prayer, and I don't think I'd be able to do my work without spending time in meditation and prayer. And that keeps me connected, helps me to overcome the frailties in myself and the difficult responses I have to the external challenges. So without prayer, I'd be nothing. Uh, Meditation and prayer, they're on a continuum for me. Spiritual study, engaging other people, um, trying to stay open to God throughout, but most importantly is, is having a regular spiritual routine. How do you relate
1: differently to God now, further along in your life, in your spiritual journey, than at the first? What ways are you different, or is your relationship different?
0: That question could be posed to anybody on, on the spiritual path because there's always a difference between a teenager's enthusiasm and a uh, mature, mature relationship with God. In other words, the question, for the first time in this interview, I had to stop and think. The question, is it a function of maturity in a person's growing or is it a function of the particularity of my path? In my case, they're intertwined. Um, teenage exuberance, as described in the Danzig episode I mentioned earlier, is not the same as a a deep, mature relationship with God that fills the heart, fills the entire person, and seeks to transform everything. The former seeks the high points, the other seeks to transform the darkness within oneself. So, there's an, a relationship with God changes as you mature. The way I prayed 40 years ago is not the way I pray today. But there's no doubt that in my own personal journey, I have been... Impacted by the contacts I've had with other religions in multiple ways. First of all, by following the example of seeing how other people practice their spiritual life and that providing a model for my own deepening and a broader understanding of God. You know, I mentioned earlier that the starting point were the saints. Uh, My friend wanted a course on the saints in the Christian world. My latest book the one that has come out not the one that's about to come out it's called religious genius it's a theory of how we can be inspired by the finest exemplars of another religion it's a it's a process i worked on with about 50 scholars over a number of years with the support of the john templeton foundation to take what we intuitively call saints by to identify a group within that world of saints that can speak across traditions because they're not just their significance is not just tradition specific And it's been a a very important part of my life to follow these religious geniuses and saints. And they are part of the riches that I have received from other faiths. And ultimately, that plays into my understanding of God, because they become teachers. Through them, you have a deeper approach to God, and they become part of the broadest world of God. As you go on, God is not just a person or just a being out there. It's the totality, and the totality includes as you go on, the great vastness of everything, both in the natural world and in the spiritual world, and that includes also the different religions. So God is known through the expanses of the imprints of the spiritual life that you encounter in other faiths. And in that way, obviously, this has been a great expansive and deepening process for myself.
1: Have you ever met someone engaged in dialogue and thought, I just don't know if we can make a connection in this particular case? I mean, is that ever a difficulty?
0: Have you met people as people that you've had the same experience with? Yes. So why should that be different? Not necessarily different, yes. It's the same process. You can't connect with everyone. You can't, you've got to meet people who are either on the same wavelength or who can at least cultivate an appreciation. And there's no doubt that my work has been a process of meeting and engaging the like-minded or like-spirited. I like That's a good expression. Not like-minded, but like-spirited, going back to our dichotomy. Uh, people. There certainly are people that I cannot engage, but I can engage them in other ways. In other words, some of the people in Judaism I can engage on the Jewish line, but not on the interfaith line. And the people who don't have faith, I might be able to engage them on the human line. So, you're always finding ways of engaging people. But there are some people you can share with, the Christ or Stendals of the world, you can share with more fully.
1: Are you filled with hope by what you see
0: in your outreach? I'm filled with hope because I'm, I'm a chronically, irreparably hopeful person. Someone said to me when I turned 60 last year uh, that they don't know a more hopeful person than me. And here I am trying to create this institute called HOPE. Even though it's an acronym for House of Prayer and Education, it is about bringing hope. Um, I'm very stubborn, so I don't take no for an answer. That's sometimes good, sometimes bad. But the flip side of this stubbornness is also a deeply ingrained hopefulness. Where does it come from? I think it comes from the soul. I think it comes from the reality of God. I think it comes from the fact that you know God is doing the work and you're working in God, with God, for God. And the hope comes from there. If it was just a human project, maybe I would have given up. But then again, well, if I give up, what else will I do in life? Do you see
1: faith as something mysterious or something practical?
0: I don't see faith as mysterious. I see faith as something real. Neither. I I don't know what you mean by practical, but faith is real. God is real. Faith is the reality of living in God what makes you sense that
1: state that as a fact god is real
0: experience and experience you cultivate by practice so god reaches to you you open up to him it's the point of evolution and our lives are you spoke earlier about you know evolution of our knowledge of god the evolution of our knowledge of god is that god is real and the more real he is the more it colors all of life and the more it's expansive. And that that is the process of our growth, knowing that God is real. So is that faith? Yes, it's faith, but it's also knowledge.
1: Maybe a final question. If people just heard about your institute, as many will from this interview for the first time, may want to go to the website, what counsel do you have for people who might even be a little bit nervous? I've never reached out to that congregation across town or those people.
0: We did a campaign called Make Friends in which some of the world's premier religious leaders participated In a call to making friends. If you go on our website, currently the website uh, features not the normal website, but a kind of overlay in which the Make Friends campaign takes the front page. Go into the Make Friends campaign. There's a toolkit there. Download the toolkit for making friends. It has some practical tips also on how to reach out to other communities.
1: Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear more about the concept of holy envy with Dr. Grant Underwood and hear a panel of listeners discuss the ideas presented by our guest, Rabbi Alain Goshen Gottstein. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. In my interview with Rabbi Alon Goshen Gottstein, I referred briefly to Holy Envy, which he was very familiar with. He knew Krister Stendhal, in fact, dedicated a book to him. And I wanted to talk about that concept a little bit more. I'm speaking right now with Brigham Young University Professor of History and holder of the Richard L. Evans Chair of Religious Understanding, Dr. Grant Underwood. Dr. Underwood, thank you so much.
2: A pleasure to be here. These are not
1: unfamiliar concepts to you.
2: No, and not to most who uh, work in the area of interfaith and interreligious relations. They come from Krister Stendhal, a Swedish pastor, scholar, Renaissance man in many ways, who was known for his generous heart and open and appreciative attitude toward others and other religions. And so he coined the phrase holy envy, which, to be as simple as possible, probably could be best translated righteous admiration Hmm. for that which is beautiful and good in others' and others' religions.
1: As the chair of Religious Understanding, where you do interfaith work, is this something that you had personal experience with even before you were involved that way?
2: Absolutely. It goes back to my teenage years when I grew up in Southern California and had a dear friend, a born-again Christian friend by the name of Mike Campbell. I hope Mike is listening to this somewhere. Mike was a wonderful Christian, and I admired his Christ-like character and desired in my own way and within my own tradition to emulate it. That was followed not too many years later by a formative experience when I happened to have the good fortune to be on a tour of the Holy Land, as we like to say. And at that time, the West Bank was open. And I will never forget on the bus coming around a corner, and there in a tiny little village, couldn't have been more than a dozen or 15 dwellings, there in its midst was a beautiful little mosque, with green tile and that minaret there. And at that moment, an impression came upon me. God loves these people. They are devout. They love him. And I thought, wow, that is so wonderful. I want to be as devout as I can be, as devout as these humble people are. So these are a couple of experiences that go way back in my life that make me appreciative of the chance to now pursue this more systematically with a greater amount of time in this professorial chair of religious understanding.
1: So do you find that this is very common as you have outreach to other universities or
2: academic institutions that this is in people's minds today? Actually, I do, Steve. This is not uncommon. And this is part of holy envy. Me practicing holy envy is to see the good in others. And I tell you that without too much effort, it's easy to discern a very widespread sentiment of generosity, of appreciation in many who are engaged in the business of religion full time. It's actually uncommon among those who are serious students of religion religion, whether they be in universities or in your neighborhood. It's very uncommon to find serious students who do not come at it with an attitude of appreciation, of looking for the beautiful, holy envy. Because most people know that the way you make friends is to look at the positive, to notice the valuable, the interesting in other people. So you build relations by looking at that which is beautiful in other people, if you wish to cultivate a friendship. If you want to know about their religion, you ask them. You don't ask the critic, the antagonist. That's how you treat a friend. Hmm. If you were wondering about something in a relationship, you'd say, well, I've heard this, but you're my friend. I'm going to ask you, what is your version of the story? And you're always going to be as generous to friends as possible. So, those characteristics that make up successful everyday relations can easily be transferred into a religious context. I think one of the things that is so attractive about what Rabbi Alon is doing and what Krister Stendahl did, and what many others. There are so many interreligious, interfaith organizations, centers for mutual understanding that I think I would want to say to folks who are interested: Google, start looking. It won't take long before you can find in your neighborhood, in your region a center, an institute, a group of people, perhaps an association of religious practitioners who are interested in this and get acquainted with them and learn how it's done and go forth and practice. Among the many publications of Rabbi Alon, his most recent volume entitled Religious Genius is dedicated to helping readers find inspiration in the lives and messages of other significant religious figures outside of their own tradition. I think that captures Rabbi Alone's spirit and the spirit that all of us who are interested in building bridges of interfaith harmony and goodwill can pursue. And so I recommend that volume and that endeavor to learn from and be inspired by, not just academically learn from, but to be personally, spiritually inspired by the lives of others in others' faiths.
1: Dr. Grant Underwood, Richard L. Evans Chair of Religious Understanding, Professor of History at Brigham Young University. Thank you so much for taking time.
2: A great pleasure. Thank you.
1: How has your relationship with God changed as you've matured? If you see a place for yourself in a particular religion, what place do you see for those of other faiths and traditions? How do you feel about sharing wisdom, both giving as well as receiving it from others? We invited a group of people to listen to our guest and then respond. Stephen Tuttle teaches creative writing and literature. He's the father of two. Madeline Dresden is an adjunct professor in the BYU writing department. Carrie Soper is an artist and professor who teaches courses on comics, film, and popular culture. Marvin Payne is a song and dance man who loves to act and survives between roles by playing in a Celtic band and a rock band that really does practice in a garage.
3: Rabbi began with youthful remembrances. I don't have many youthful remembrances just because it was so long ago, but that seems to be a logical place to start. What was critical about his youthful experience?
4: It's interesting that he seems to be referring to a type of uh, youthful passion towards one's faith or maybe other aspirations that one has in life. And As as he said that, it made me think of my own experiences as a a young adult being fully invested in the idea of becoming a uh, a cartoonist, a satirist. And I was actively drawing cartoons for my college paper that uh, poked fun at practices in the culture around me and kind of categorized people according to different social types and their various foibles. And I relished the idea of being like a, a thorn in the side. Of, of of the of the people around me, the culture. I even looked forward to the the hate mail I would receive, <laughs> and I thought that I would spend my entire career like you know relishing being that kind of iconoclast and, and social critic. And it's interesting how you move through life and you, you you go through your middle age years, and your perspective gradually changes. And I softened. Maybe that some of that youthful antagonism or passion or maybe righteous indignation about the things I was taking on is sort of dampened. Becoming more involved in my own faith community and receiving what you might call, you know, assignments or callings where I'm asked to fellowship other people that are different than me required me to move beyond that kind of thinking where you you categorize people, reduce them to boxes, and see them as um, an antagonist. Uh, that was a productive experience for me in terms of maturation. Letting go of some of that youthful exuberance that maybe is directed in ways that are scattershot or with a, a bit too much animosity.
3: Well, the rabbi's maturing led him directly to the whole issue of people different from me. Yeah. And how that was all about growing. That was all about uh, wisdom expanding and faith getting fostered, which is different than where I was as a, as a young person. But he doesn't say much about what his youth was really like except that his his uh, religious connection became exuberant at a certain point, but it sure led him to a to a different place than either y- you or I were yeah. <laughs> at that
4: time. Well, it's interesting that he pushed back on the interviewer just a little bit and, you know, S- Steve in pointing out that y- you don't need to go to like a radically different cultural tradition to find people that are different than you, that, that might trip you up in terms of being able to connect. I mean – Often it's your next-door neighbor, right? Where you really have to stretch yourself and learn to see things from their perspective. And it could be a political divide or some class divide or something. But that, that kind of open-mindedness is required you know, on, on an immediate daily basis, isn't it?
5: I think that's right. I'm intrigued, Carrie, by the story you tell about this iconoclastic tendency when you were younger. When I look at the literature I read when I was a younger person... Almost all of it spoke to this specialness that you, the, you by extension, this this character, are going to change the world. You alone are going to change the world. And everything is set up in such a way that it's going to be you alone against some great power or something like that. And as I've matured, the literature I've read has changed. So that now I'm reading about people existing in communities where my choices affect or have consequences – in a number of different ways simultaneously. And so I wonder if maybe our faith journey, the experience we all have, just mimics our general life trajectory, where we go from thinking I'm alone in a bubble and everything I do matters uniquely, to thinking, no, I'm part of a large group and I have to get along with a whole lot of different players. Because if I don't, things start to fall apart. So for, for me, I think... As I heard the rabbi talking, I was thinking about the ways in which, um, as as a very young person of of faith, um, I often uh, looked directly to those individuals in scripture narratives. The young Samuels, for example, who have this great prophetic calling falls directly onto his shoulders. And as I age, I'm also, you know, in those middle years now, as I raise children and as I think about my own experience, uh, I'm a teacher, I'm in the classroom. I'm much less concerned than I used to be with the individual and his battle and his challenge and his calling than I am with how people get along in the large scale.
4: That's interesting. I wonder if what you're talking about, that life trajectory, could also correlate with studies they've done about this happiness curve that some Americans or people actually universally <coughs> experience where they go from feeling you know, acute sensation of happiness and joy as a young person, maybe in alignment with that passion – and then you kind of gradually slide into this deep middle-aged curve of unhappiness <laughs> that actually persists well into your late 40s. And then you start coming out of it. And I, I wonder if like maybe letting go of some of that um, passion, <laughs> at least yeah. if it's ill-directed or or maybe aspirations that are a little bit too worldly or unrealistic. Or too lofty or, or something. Or too lofty. Yeah. A- and then gradually shifting to um, forgetting – about your own life to to a certain degree and engaging in in warmth relationships with others in a community of of believers or just a, a community beyond you know your isolated self That's right. opens up that new vista of happiness and contentment
5: it's, it's it's an entirely new way of seeing fulfillment
3: isn't it yeah the rabbi wants he he, he wants a community that transcends community we we find ourselves naturally in communities of common activity, common ways of thinking. What he seems to be all about is creating an, a whole nother community above those communities and finding some real marvelous connections and community interactions and community growth that is on this level that transcends the communities in which we conveniently find ourselves. It seems to me that he's talking about a certain inconvenient community creating process?
5: Well, there are those communities we are forced into or we find ourselves in without thinking. Demographic communities where I live, where I go to school, who I go to church with, where I may like these people, but I didn't necessarily choose them. And then I think this higher community you're talking about may be one in which I have very very carefully chosen the people I want to interact with, the people who are unlike me, for example, and I Mm -hmm. want to reach out to that person and say, I know very well what people in certain communities are going to say, because I've been part of them for my entire life. But I don't know what you think, or what you think, what somebody uh, with an entirely different experience. And that, that to me is a very mature and and very interesting approach to community, to one that is created rather than fallen into.
6: I really appreciated how he when he was talking about this transcendent sort of community that transcends tradition, transcends religion, how it takes a very special kind of person to be that level of teacher, to relate to other people. And it reminded me of my classroom setting, because as a teacher, I'm trying to show my students how to get out of this youthful exuberance and this bubble, this isolation that a lot of them have grown up with and try to encourage them to reach out to different discourse communities, because I see great value in that. And so I really related to what was being said about reaching out across uh, our bubbles and our filters. And one way that I do that is by having people from different communities come and be willing to share themselves with My classroom, for example, having someone from the deaf community come and be open to answering any and all questions that they have. But one of the challenges for doing this is you really have to pick the right person to come into the classroom, someone who isn't easily offended by insensitive questions, because unless, you know, what's a a bad question. You need to ask it to find out. (laughs) And it really takes the right person to understand where you're coming from, what your limitations are, in order to help everyone transcend together. I think the term that he used was religious geniuses. And I think that also translates into other aspects of life. And it really made me wonder how I can improve and be that kind of person who is the teacher in that regard, who can transcend religion and tradition and be able to reach out. And not just for me, but also for them, that mutual enrichment that he was talking about.
4: I wanna chime in on this notion of like a higher level community as well. I think one challenge of uh, believers, right, in a faith tradition is that there's this kind of typical trajectory or or movement that um, has a lot of obstacles in terms of keeping hold of your, your faith. And that is you pursue an education and you encounter a lot of people, especially in graduate school, who seem to assume that part of your growth will be letting go of your faith tradition. That somehow it's assumed that in embracing a certain <clears throat> type of cosmopolitanism, that that's a provincial thing that you leave in, in your past. You know, there's a lot of pressure to let go of that somehow. In some ways, it's, it's uh, understandable that that occurs. I, I recently finished a, a memoir called Educated by a young woman, Tara Westover who grew up in a fundamentalist community in Idaho, ended up going to BYU and uh, found ways to go from there to Cambridge and Harvard, become a part of this more cosmopolitan community of people that weren't trapped by dogmatic, orthodox, you know, fundamentalist traditions that were very tribal. You think about your own life and like the compromises you make and uh, the, the ways that you let go of some things and hold on to others as you try to take part in that larger intellectual community, that sometimes is averse to religion in general. Would any of you kind of relate to that?
5: When you were telling the story about, or when you were talking about the expectation of growing away from one's faith tradition, I had an experience, uh, I feel feel naive even sort of confessing to this because I didn't see it coming. But when I was in my PhD program, uh, we had a guest writer come to campus and it was nice to spend some time talking about writing and things like that. And at one point uh, the conversation was over and it got a little personal and she just said, so you grew up Mormon. And I said, I did. And she said, well, when did you leave the faith? And it never even occurred to me. For her, this was just an expectation that of course somebody in an academic community would have left the faith of their childhood. And I thought, wait, I, I was supposed to have done this? Like I didn't, I didn't know the trajectory she was talking about. And it, it occurred to me only later that this was so, such a familiar path for, for academics or for certain people in certain communities that it's the expectation rather than, it's the norm. So it took, it took me some time to think through what that meant for me and how much I had investigated my own faith before coming to the stage I was in. It's, it's a strange moment for me.
3: Yeah, <laughs> that's nuts. <laughs> you know, to 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 have that kind of an expectation, but I guess she could be excused for her nuttiness because it's so observable. I mean, yeah. people do, people do shuck it off and abandon abandon where they've come from. Pretty routinely.
4: I had an interesting uh, thought about, well, we'll see if it's interesting, Um, (laughs) this notion of holy envy where you get close enough to another faith tradition that you develop like a deep, you know, sort of affinity or appreciation for it. This accidentally happened to me when I was a young adult. My uh, wife and I wanted an adventure one summer while we were attending Utah State University, and uh, we found out that we could get cheap lodging in New Haven, Connecticut while my brother and his wife were doing a clerkship somewhere else. So we drove in our little Subaru across country and spent three months in New Haven, Connecticut, not really knowing what we were doing. Uh, we had to find jobs. My first job was at a plant nursery that lasted a day. It was so physically exhausting that I couldn't, you know, handle going back a second day. And so I was pouring through the, the want ads and found a job as a craft counselor at a day camp. And, um, Studying art, I thought that would be, you know, a good option. So I applied, and it turned out to be a Jewish day camp. And they were um, so desperate for a last-minute replacement for this position that they were willing to look beyond the fact that I wasn't Jewish. But apparently every other counselor in the camp was Jewish, and they said, don't misrepresent yourself, but kind of keep it on the down low that you're not Jewish. And so I basically had to go through, you know, several weeks of just kind of quietly pretending as if I was— you know, part of this this tradition and teaching crafts that were all Jewish-themed, you know, just passing as if I'm part of the community. And eventually, you know, came out with the other counselors that I wasn't Jewish, and people were fine with that. But it was fascinating to sort of be accidentally absorbed or adopted into this other faith community with the parents and the children and the counselors all welcoming me and talking to me as if I was part of that community. There were awkward moments. There was a party once where I brought a plate of, kosher pickles, not knowing what else to bring that might not get me into trouble, and then that becoming a big point of laughter and discussion when people examined it. But there was a, a level of friendship and intimacy, almost like I was a, an adopted member that came from this strange set of uh, circumstances, and the, the type of friendships that came out of that were maybe better, deeper than I might have experienced if, I, if I'd gone in like with um, walls or guards up, or if they had likewise been kind of uh, reticent to open up to me. I'm curious
5: what happened when you came out, as it were, as a, non, as a non-Jew as in
4: that situation. Did, what, did, did relationships change? Maybe for like a day or two, there was like, you know, confusion and a little bit of shock. Some people, I mean, it was a very, I think, orthodox community of, of Jewish people that sent their kids to the school. And there was still a little bit of concern, like, maybe we shouldn't let this out to the parents. Right. Like, there, people <laughs> might be slightly disgruntled. But then it became kind of this funny secret that the camp counselors all had in common, and I would get teased a lot, and there was a lot of fun that came out of it, and it was a very uh, nice level of kind of joking and camaraderie.
3: It's great. I'm a little worried that time will elapse before we've addressed what I found to be the most chall- – personally the most challenging notion in what the rabbi had to share. The slogan of his Elijah Interfaith Institute is uh, – sharing wisdom, fostering faith, and a pretty fundamental operating principle of their conversation is that conversion work is off the table. That challenged me, I, I, as, I, as I was listening to h- him speak, I, I wrote down with an arrow on my little sheet here that sharing is as much getting as giving. When I think about sharing, I think about, well, I'm going to give. That's what sharing is about. But if I'm going to value sharing, I, I better go in with the attitude that I'm going to, to get, I'm going to receive. And with sort of a preconceived respect for, for what I'm going to, to receive, as a Latter-day Saint, you know, we just have this deeply ingrained missionary spirit And just the notion of existing in this higher community of of sharing and learning from one another without the responsibility, matter of fact, with it forbidden (laughs) that we share our ideas with the purpose of converting somebody, bringing them around to our way of thinking, that's just really quite a challenging notion.
6: I'm glad you brought that up because as I was listening to him talk, it actually reminded me of one of the biggest regrets of my life. I did a, a bit of proselyting work when I was younger. As a Mormon missionary, you always have a companion. And my companion and I were walking the streets doing what we were told to do, which is talk to everyone, share, con- try to convert people, and hand out pamphlets and the like. And I served in, in Korea, South Korea, and there are a lot of fellow proselyters out there. There are a lot of missionaries from different denominations, which create some interesting opportunities to share and, and talk and sometimes, sadly, even debate pointlessly on the street. And at one point, we came across a, another proselyter who handed us a pamphlet. And I thought this was a great opportunity to do some exchange. So I said, here, you take our pamphlet. We'll take your pamphlet. We will read each other's items and try to learn from each other. But this particular missionary was really belligerent. And she said, no, I will not take your pamphlet. You just take mine. And my companion was very docile. She was very submissive. And she said, sure, sure, that works totally fine. I will take your pamphlet. You don't have to take ours. And that moment, this Mormon training, I suppose, this ingrained, no, 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 I have to share. I have to convert just really blazed inside of me and I got angry and I grabbed the lady's pamphlet, crumpled it up and threw it away and said basically, no, if you're not going to listen to us, then I'm not going to listen to you either. And pretty much stormed off. And my companion was left really confused and apologetic to the other lady. And I said to her, don't ever act like you can be converted. That's not what we're here for is to convert. Don't act like this can work on you. This can't backfire. At the time, I felt like I had done the exactly appropriate, correct thing. And it wasn't until, well, really just days later to my credit that I realized that maybe something was a little off about this exchange and there's something wrong about me not being open to listening to other ideas and feeling like if I'm not received, then there's no point to this relationship.
4: I had kind of a liberating experience recently, you know, in relation to this idea of kind of letting go of that being like some kind of primary motivation in, in engaging with people beyond one's own faith community. Um, my family, extended family, was troubled about you know a year ago in hearing about a lot of the challenges of refugees around the world, and we were looking for a way to like get involved locally or you know just from our own homes in helping with this effort. And so we did a little bit of um, poking around and found that there was a new foundation here in Provo that was sponsoring refugees from around the world, and. They asked people to sponsor a family coming from, you know, a place like Africa or Syria as they tried to acclimate to Utah County where, our, you know, the university is where, where I teach. So we we signed on board. We got our extended family all to, to commit to sponsor a family. And one of the instructions we were given at the start was there's there's no, you know, missionary work allowed in this endeavor. You know, you're, you're just helping these people financially and um, in terms of social integration, but leave, you know, any kind of missionary work out of it, of course. And that was, you know, up front. So it was almost, you know, liberating, I guess, to kind of l- let go of that and just engage directly with the, the everyday needs of this family from the Democratic Republic of Congo, which happened to be from a Baptist uh, tradition. We've included them, like, in family dinners and other events and helped with, the, you know, the, the birth of one of their children. And there's been this sweetness— to our engagement, they understand our faith; we understand theirs. But it sort of transcends, you know, interactions. Any kind of missionary effort, and um, it, it's a nice reminder of what it means just to be a, a morally engaged with other people's lives and to leave sort of, you know, particular denominational affiliations out of the out of the picture.
3: Do you feel any sense of compromise relief? Yes, mm-hmm. I, I can relate to that, but do you feel any any measure of compromise and how do you how do you deal with that
4: well maybe some of that lifetime trajectory we were talking about earlier could come into play that as a young adult with some of that uh, missionary zeal you're uh, so committed to like promoting the truth that you've you've found but then i think as an academic and as a middle-aged person who gradually i guess gets humbled over time um in terms of respecting um, other people's experiences and, and perceptions of truth, you become a, a little bit less um, zealous or, or I guess, overconfident about you having something superior to others. And so it's it may, it's maybe easier later in life to, like, just be more flexible, more open-minded, and still hold on to your own truths, but be open to others without feeling kind of some primal need to um, add to theirs or displace theirs in an active way. But But rather... Let them be who they are. And and if they learn from you, if they gain some of your wisdom, that's great. It's an exchange.
6: Yeah, I think especially as a missionary at the time, it's really hard to find that compromise because that is literally your job is to convert. But since then, I have found that that has been much, much easier to do. And even on the mission, I did find that if I wanted to benefit from my relationships with these people, whom I loved, then I really did need to be their friend more than anything else, more than their, I guess, savior in a way, their their soul savior. What I needed to do was be their friend. I honestly gained a lot from just being around. Carrie, you talked about being around a very tight Jewish community, and I was in a country where Buddhism was central to their very culture, to their identities. I learned an awful lot about respecting life and nature and all creatures, which was something that I hadn't really gotten from where I grew up and with my traditions. So I really valued that and it really expanded my perception of not containing all truth in whatever it is I believe in, whatever my religion or faith is. It does not contain all truth. There That's is cool. something to be learned everywhere.
3: Madeline, your story about the pamphlet exchange well, the, the aborted pamphlet exchange right. reminds me of, of an experience that my wife had uh, on her mission in the Netherlands because Indonesia was once a Dutch colony. There are lots of Indonesians in the Netherlands, and they're predominantly Muslim. And uh, she tried to give a Book of Mormon to uh, an Indonesian Muslim who was living in the Netherlands, and he said, well, fine, I'll take that if you'll take my copy of the Quran. And she kind of bitter tongue and, and, and took it. The the end of that story is that, it, is that decades later, I read the Quran because it was on the bookshelf. <laughs> and I wanted to know, uh, you know, uh, suddenly the, the Muslim culture was, was kind of clashing up against the non-Muslim culture, and I just wanted to understand it better. I don't know if that makes me like the Rabbi Goshen Gottstein or not, but this whole idea of Just getting into a relationship, he said, I'm all about relationships, getting into a relationship with the idea of being eager to get from the other person the wisdom that they have. That's our time for today. Thanks to
1: our panelists, Stephen, Madeline, Carrie, and Marvin, and especially to Rabbi Alan Goshen Gottstein for generously sharing his stories and his faith. Learn more about the Elijah Interfaith Institute at elijah-interfaith.org. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. We hope you found value in today's conversation and we welcome your thoughts and ideas about the program. Email us at ingoodfaith@byu.edu. at byu.edu. Find us online at byuradio.org ingoodfaith. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Our Twitter feed is at ingoodfaithbyu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. Our associate producers are Christine Knockleby and Marcus Smith. I'm your host and producer, Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join with us again soon, right here, in good faith.